Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Uh, We have a number of passages to look at on the issue of grief, but we're going to turn to the passage we will land upon. You see it at the end of the outline in the bulletin. It is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now... For a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would apprehend what you've revealed to us in your word, about what you have done through the Lord Jesus Christ to give us a hope in that which can never be taken away, can never fade, spoil, or perish, so that we would be encouraged in this day, no matter how low we may be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This week in the prayer chain, you saw that Sally Ferris uh, was taken to the hospital from uh, her nursing home. And indeed, last night at 11.39, she went on to glory. For those of you who don't know, uh, Sally and her husband, Alan, who uh, went on to glory a couple of years ago, they came, became a part of the Sycamore family in the early 90s. And Sally had MS. I never uh, knew her when she did not need uh, a wheelchair she ended up having a scooter that she could skate around and when others would have to have scooters, she'd have drag races out on the sidewalk with them and things like that. Uh, but, but the light in her life and her faith in Christ in the face of the disability of MS was a, a testimony uh, that is the message this morning. I'll not be shaken. It's not that she never got discouraged, but Christ held on to her, held her close, held her up, and now has taken her to glory. Do you catch that? Do you know the witness? She has asked, I don't know if the men's choir can pull it off in time, but uh, her request was that the men's choir uh, sing, All God's Children Got Shoes. When I get to heaven, going to put on my shoes, going to dance all over God's heaven. She just wanted us to sing that uh, when it was time to celebrate her life and her faith. And her going on to glory. This message is titled, Good Grief. When you saw that, how many of you read it like Charlie Brown? Good grief. When Lucy once again pulled the football out and he landed on his back and he looks at, the, looks at you in the cartoon cell and he just says, good grief. That, that's the way we usually think about the trials and difficulties we have. Is good grief. The psalmist even prayed that kind of thing. Have mercy on me, O God, because of the distress of my life. It's it's good grief, God. Why why is this happening? And yet I trust in you. See, that's worshiping. You don't come to worship God saying, 
I'm just not going to pay attention to what's going on in my real life. I'm going to go through the outward forms of worship. Nor do we turn away from God in our grief and say, you must not care. We say, Yet I put my trust in you. And there is a goodness in grief that we have to think about this morning. There are two ways of thinking about being good. One is to being pleasant, enjoyable. In that sense, grief is never good. It's not pleasant. It's not enjoyable. And so you can say, you don't, don't say good grief. If someone came in here and your heart is heavy, there's something that just is bringing you down so low. You say, you're saying grief is good? Good grief. But that's not exactly what I'm saying. There is a holiness to grief. It's not the pleasant, enjoyable versus bad grief. It's there's a holiness in grief. We know that because Jesus himself entered into our grief and took upon himself our sufferings. We're not going to read every passage that's in your bulletin. I invite you to look them up uh, later to see them more in depth. But in Isaiah 53, uh, 3, we find that the prophecy about the Messiah in the Old Testament is that he would be despised and forsaken by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. That's the way the NIV translates it, the King James and the ESV, acquainted with grief. Now, I thought about that, so I looked up the Hebrew words behind that, and the Hebrew word actually means uh, illness, pain. He's familiar with pain. And with pain and suffering we, is grief. Jesus entered into it. And in two places in the New Testament, in the Gospels, he wept. One was over Lazarus. Now I propose to you, if you look at John 11 and read it this afternoon, Jesus wasn't directly weeping over his sense of loss in Lazarus. He had delayed when he heard Lazarus was sick. For four days, because he was going to let him die, knowing that he would come and raise him back to life. That was his purpose. He would be glorified in this so that others could see he had the power over death. So that when he promised by his death and resurrection to give eternal life, people could say, this is the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. I believe him. I trust in him. That was Jesus' purpose. And when he came and he met Mary and Martha and he saw the, the distress of the family and friends, he was deeply moved in spirit. And it's the shortest verse in the Bible when he saw the effect of sin and death upon the family and friends. He didn't say, oh, stop it. Don't worry. Be happy. I thought about having a little jingle. That Lots of people think Christians just put a plastic happy face on everything. And they don't really deal with it. Jesus didn't do that. He entered into their grief and he wept with them and for them. Even knowing that he was going to raise Lazarus back on this side of death. But if that's all he had done, that would have been a a small victory because Lazarus eventually died later. That was just a foretaste of the eternal life that he would give to all who would trust in him. So Jesus entered our grief in John 11. He wept over the grief that death brings and grieved with the family and friends. If you come with heavy hearts this morning, 
He enters your grief. He doesn't say, buck up. Know that he cares for you. And he weeps with you. And you say, well, how can that be true? If he's sovereign, he's Lord, he can fix this. Well, that's kind of what Mary and Martha were saying to Jesus. And he just said, trust me. Trust me. In Luke chapter 19, and in, uh, uh, we find as Jesus entered uh, Jerusalem, he wept over the sins of Jerusalem in rejecting him. He had been telling his disciples that he was coming uh, to Jerusalem. He'd be handed over and he'd be crucified and he'd rise again on the third day. He knew what was going to happen to him in the city. If anybody had reason to come to the city and say, kind of defiantly, you're going to reject me, but watch and see, I'm going to win, Jesus could have said that. But that would have been our human nature, our fallen human nature. Instead, Jesus was grieved over the sin and its consequences for those who, as he put it, did not recognize the day of their visitation. When God the Son himself would come to Jerusalem, he said, if you... If only you had known, if only you had recognized me, I would have gathered you to myself. He cared for them, even in their sin and rejection of him. So Jesus wept over sin and death. Is, is that a source of grief in your life? Isn't grief usually over circumstances that we don't like that are bad for us? But grieving over sin and the consequence of sin, the, the trouble that is brought to this fallen and broken world. That's holy grief. That's Jesus' grief. What is grief? If you look it up in the dictionary, you're going to find other synonyms like deep bereavement and, and things like that. It, it didn't get into the insights of what causes grief. It's interesting to see the secondary uh, definitions in the dictionary are like uh, annoyance, uh, annoyance and irritation. Like, you're causing me grief. That's true. We use grief that in a lighthearted way. We're talking about the deep grief this morning. What is grief? I would propose to you that holy grief is an expression of love. In fact, all grief in a certain way is an expression of love. We'll get into whether it's good or bad in just a moment. But more particularly, let me say... That grief is our response to the loss of something we love. Think about that. Our grief is our response to the loss of something we love. Is it good or bad? Well, that depends. We have to ask ourselves, what do we love? The passage in... Your outline is Luke 18, verses 18 through 24. That's the parable of the rich young ruler. Matthew and Mark also have this story told. It's very important. This rich young ruler came with a good question, said, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and said, you know the commandments, love your neighbor uh, as your, he listed the second half of the Ten Commandments that are summarized by love your neighbors yourself. And the man said, I've done all these things all my life. And Jesus said, one thing you still lack. Go and sell all your possessions and come and follow me. He put his finger on what the man's idol was. And the man's face fell. And he became very sad. And he walked away from Jesus. 
He loved his things more than he loved the Savior. That doesn't mean the things in themselves are inherently wrong. But the love of those things, more than the love for the Savior, is an idol. And that is wrong. So you can, uh, we may love the wrong things, and meaning we love sin. Don't discount that. We, we love our selfishness. We love our pride. We love our, that's why we hold on to those things. So we can love sinful things, and we know that's wrong. That's, and if, if we lose out on that, the man who is going through that midlife crisis and thinks, I want to start over, and he's unhappy with his wife, and he looks outside of his marriage, and he starts chasing another woman, and she rejects him, will experience grief. Because he's losing hope on something that he thought he could find happiness in. That's sinful from the start. It's loving something that is sinful. So that kind of grief is sinful grief. But we can also love a good thing in a sinful way. Here's the illustration. If a a bride loved her bridegroom because he gave her such a nice ring... What does that imply? Well, if this diamond had not been this big, I wouldn't love you. See, that's getting it backwards. But if the bride loves the ring because her bridegroom gave it to her, no matter what its size, no matter what its value, if it's an expression of his love to her, she can love the ring with the love that is derived from her love for the bridegroom. God gives us many blessings in this life. And inordinate love for those blessings says this. I love God because he's blessed me so much. And when he allows a time of grief into our lives, that tests us. That's our Peter passage. It proves our faith genuine or not. When he takes it away, that's Job's test. If God doesn't bless us the way we want, then we don't love him anymore. The ring's not big enough. But if we love him... Because of his love for us and what he's done for us in Christ. And the joy that is set before us for eternity. Then whatever blessing he gives us in this life. In family, friends, possessions, uh, health. All sorts of good things we praise God for. And we can love those things. But it's a subordinate love to our love for him. So that when they pass, we're not lost. So we may love good things in the wrong way. Secondly, we may be short-sighted. In John 16, verses 20 through 22, um, yeah, I'm going to read this one. The whole section from chapters 14 through 16 is about Jesus going away to prepare a place for his disciples that he may come back for them to take them to be with him where he is. He says he's comforting uh, them with these words. And near the end of this section... You know, Jesus says in verse 16, chapter 16, let me begin in verse 19. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And then he uses this illustration which is one that we all can understand. A woman giving birth to a child has pain 
because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. We get that. The labor pains have the purpose of the joy that is to come. That's the way we should approach all the griefs and pains of this world. That We live in a world that is in labor pains. Romans uh, has a passage that talks about that specifically, that we groan as the, uh, the mother in childbirth, longing for the day of redemption. But do we have that sense of what is to come? And the joy there, so it gives purpose for what we're going through now. Jesus is telling his disciples, you're distressed when I say I go away. But you're just being short-sighted. If you can remember, I go away, then yes, you will grieve now. But in the end, you will rejoice. Do you remember that? Short-sighted grief is not sinful. I don't think Jesus is. He's just encouraging his disciples with this. He's not really putting them down. But he's putting before them a bigger picture. So that they can be encouraged when they're in grief. The last one, we may turn away from God and blame him. That's Job's temptation. That's the whole point of the testing. Satan said to God, you take away his blessings, he'll curse you. After God had allowed Satan to afflict Job and all these blessings were taken away, Job's wife said to him, curse God and die. Curse God and die. That's, that is a response to suffering. It just proves that we love the gifts, not to the giver. We want the ring more than the the bridegroom. That's the test of suffering in our lives. So we can respond in grief in sinful ways. So not all grief is good. But at its heart, grief is is a holy expression over the loss of something that we love. We just need to love the right thing. What is it that we're ultimately grieving over? You see in your outline, went to Genesis chapter 3. I propose to you that Genesis chapter 3 is the saddest chapter in the Bible. I won't read the whole thing. Let me just comment on uh, the first half of this this passage. In uh, Genesis 3, I'm leaving out God's curse upon Satan, uh, the tempter, because actually promising to curse the tempter and bring victory over the tempter is hope for us. But the curse upon uh, the woman and the curse upon Adam speak of a broken world. Because of our sin, we are broken people and we're turned out into a broken world. And there'll be pain in childbirth. There'll be conflict between uh, people. It's expressed in the next chapter when Cain kills Abel. And uh, to Adam it says, you'll go out and the world will produce thorns and thistles by the sweat of your brow will you labor to provide food uh, so the world is a broken world now all sin all national natural disasters all conflict between people all the wars all the terrible things that are the sufferings in this world are because we were turned out of the garden of eden that's why I would say that uh, the chapter 3 is the saddest verse in the Bible. And we tend to discount it because it sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds out there. Did it really happen? Yes, it really happened. And we need to realize uh, how everything happened from that. We'll just read verse 21 and following of the third chapter. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. That's a first picture of the gospel. 
that God would accept the sacrifice that would cover their sin. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. This is actually an act of mercy of God. He did not want us to live forever as sinners estranged from him. He wanted to bring death into the world so that he could send his son into the world to take that consequence upon himself to restore us back to him, back to the garden, back to, uh, to perfection, that we would be forgiven. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. That's the verse that I'm saying. That's the saddest statement in all the Bible because everything else comes from that. All of our griefs are derived from this. The Lord God banished him from the garden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and the flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. There's only one who has opened the door to that way of life, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us. We are ultimately grieving over the loss of God, the loss of the garden, the perfect world, the loss of life. And the day you sin, you die. We became mortal. And, uh, the, and we're banished into a, per, into a broken world. That's what we are grieving over. And so even for the person who doesn't know God, there's evidence of God in their grief. I've read, I've read a lot of different articles, uh, material on grief, uh, Christian grief uh, this week. And many of them pointed out that our grief is evidence of God. Why? Because when people are grieving, they say, why? Who are you asking? Who are you asking? There's something written deep in their hearts that we may have suppressed. That we end up saying, why? Why would you allow this? But, but I don't believe in you. But, but I still ask why. You see the catch there? You see, here's what happens when we don't turn to Christ and find the restoration, the healing for our grief. It's in our, the way we naturally are is we would suppress the need for God. And we would look to this broken world for relief. If I'm grieving because I wasn't loved in this relationship, I look for another relationship where I'll be loved, but I still deny God. If there's loss of position, perhaps from retirement and growing old and all that kind of fun stuff, to be personal, if I'm grieving over that, it's because I'm looking to this world for significance and relief instead of to the one who died for me and set glory before me. See, do you think that way about uh, all of your, your losses? Do you look to this broken world for, for the relief from grief, for your happiness? If you do, you might get it for a moment, but it will always let you down. Always. There's grief at any and every stage of life. When I first started thinking about uh, preaching on the subject, it was actually at the, the uh, discussed with uh, our ministry staff uh, some of the different topics we would uh, cover. Christine Bates uh, mentioned grief. And I, I loved it. It was significant. It came from our youngest ministry staff to deal with this issue because we usually go to the end of life, don't we, when we think of grief? Because it's certainly there. But grief 
is at any and every stage of life. Children suffer because of our inborn nature. What's one of a child's first words? Mine. It's no and mine. And there's a lot of grief that comes from mine because the sibling comes and takes away the toy. No, mine, mine. And the argument happens, the unhappiness happens, and, and parents just love it. We just love it. It's like, oh, doesn't that what? No, it's grief because of mine. We suffer because of our sinful nature. And it shows in our earliest children. Children suffer because of others' sins. When the parents are saying to each other, in essence, mine, mine, when the parents have broken relationship, when they hate each other, when they're arguing with each other, it rocks a child's world. You may not be able to express it and digest it. You think because he can't understand and express it, it doesn't hurt them that much. It's their whole world. It's like their world is that world war. They suffer at the, uh, because of the sins of others. We also, children included, suffer from broken circumstances, death of a parent, illness of a parent or a sibling. We suffer because of the, it's not the direct cause by the personal sins of anybody in the family, but it's the general result of a broken world broken by sin. Children suffer from that, and they may not be able to express how to digest it. I would call on you to be very conscious of that as a church family, that you look at our youngest, our, our children, that you know might be in difficult circumstances, and just love on them. Just care for them. Be a part of Christ's healing. You're an expression of Christ's love. You put hands and feet to Christ's love uh, for them. Teens start being able to express themselves, and they start asking, am I loved? Do I belong? Am I good at anything? Those are the three big questions. Am I loved? Do I belong? Am I good at anything? And grief happens not because you've had something and lost it, but because you hope for something and you don't get it. You don't make the team. You end up beginning to to be attracted to a person who ends up not liking you. You feel rejected. You feel like you're on the outside of of the group, and this is the in-group. And and when the in-group is mean, that's that's a terrible affliction, isn't it, on everybody? But you're asking Am I loved? Do I belong? Am I good at anything? And you feel the pain of this fallen world and all the brokenness of it. Now, it doesn't mean that all your experience is grief, because this is also a time of hope. You've got your life before you. You're being equipped. You're being prepared. And there's much that you can say, "I, I am excited about life, and I don't care if that person doesn't like me. But I would caution you, don't answer the pains and griefs of of getting bad results from am I loved, do I belong, uh, am I good at anything. Don't just answer that, but I'll find where I can find love, where I belong, and I'm good at this, just in this world's terms. Be excited. Commit your life to Christ as a teen so that you can be unshakable whatever life brings. And then he will find for you your, your love in him, your belonging in him, he will bring you into a community, he will uh, equip you to live for him. And, th- and that's exciting. When you hit your uh, young adult years, it's the same questions, but now you're not in your family as much. You're out on your own, and you're uh, trying to find out where, where you're loved, where you belong, what you're good at, and you don't even have a community around you. It can be a time of real loneliness. And there, plug into church. You've got a church family, 
keep your relationships good with your, your own family, your extended family. Uh, you're not alone, but don't just trust in that. That's still here and now. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're loved by him. You belong to him, and he's the one that will lead you into significant service for him, whether that is highly visible or whether it's in a small place. He notices every bit of uh, service given to him. Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Find your purpose in life in him. Uh, in midlife crisis, you've gotten to a point where you start evaluating, uh, have I achieved my goals? You might not say that to yourself. You might be the organized person in your mind. You, you say it that way. But whether or not you say it that way, you start asking yourself that. And if you have, there's a second question. Is, does this satisfy? Or is it coming up empty? Now, it doesn't have to come up empty and you go through a midlife crisis. Jesus told the parable of the rich fool, who I will say, he didn't have the courtesy of going through a midlife crisis. He was just foolish because he thought, I have everything I need till the day I die. What he didn't account for was, Jesus said, tonight your life will be accounted. It will be required of you. And that's why he was a fool. He was secure, but in things that were not secure, in things that were passing. So, You don't have to have a midlife crisis, but you can still be secure in the wrong things. But you might think, I've achieved everything I wanted, but this is not satisfying. Can I start over? What can I do to start over? I'm going older. I don't want to grow older. How can I become younger? Maybe you didn't get everything you want, and you think, I did not achieve. I'm a failure. What can I do to start over? And the common thing about a midlife crisis is, how can I start over? How can I be younger? It's okay to join the fitness center and get fit. That's actually good and healthy. That's positive. That's stewardship of your body. It's okay if you can afford it to buy the red sports car. You know, that's not a sin. But it's not okay to start over with a new wife and leave your family. See, that midlife crisis is a very vulnerable stage where you start doing things that I want to be happy. I need to find it. I need to achieve whatever that answers. I'm longing for something, and this isn't working. i got to try that. See, don't, don't do that, because that just brings more sin, more brokenness, more grief. As we get older, we face more illnesses. You know you're getting older when what you talk about with your friends is your aches and pains. guilty sharing our wisdom on how to handle it scheduling our doctor's appointments all of that and we began to think if we've lived for this life life is passing i either achieved what i wanted or i didn't achieve but it doesn't matter it's passing and i lose position i lose my health eventually i know i face death that's the grief of aging there's only one answer to that And it's not just grab all the gusto you can. It's not just spit in the wind and and face death defiantly. It's trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who gives eternal life. And then take every day and every blessing he gives, whatever the size of the wedding ring, say, thank you for this blessing. Help me through this grief. And my trust is in you. This is the formula for life. I'll not be shaken. I'll not be shaken. Do do you have it? Where do we find this hope? There are two passages here that I will conclude with, just basically by by reading them. One is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The first generation of Christians 
it thought that uh, Jesus was coming back within their generation. He told them even the son did not know the day of his coming, and he did not avail himself of his divine omniscience to know when he'd be coming back to tell his disciples. So we're not quite sure how the early church got it into their head that Jesus was coming back before they died out, but they started dying. The Apostle Paul had to write them these encouraging words in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 and following. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. He used that temporary term about death because it is temporary. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Grief can be holy. It means you care. It would be odd if you didn't care. But don't grieve without hope. That's despair. We don't grieve as does the rest of the world that has no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. He said, that's encouraging in the face of death and about death. But there's a whole lot of grief that's beyond death. That's why we come to the passage that we land on in First Peter. Because it's not just about that one big cause of grief. It's about all kinds of grief. I'll just read it again, beginning of verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. This is the hope we have. We don't grieve without hope. This is our hope. Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. This is comprehensive. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come. So that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. If you came into worship this morning with a heavy heart because you're in the middle of grief uh, over uh, something or other, you might be thinking, a study in grief doesn't really help. And I agree. When you're really in grief, it's time for us to come alongside and just say, I care and I'm with you. And do like Jesus did, I'll weep with you. We weep with those who weep. But to be equipped to handle grief, perhaps a past grief that you've never really digested and you're afraid it's going to come again, or the grief that will come to all of us in some day, we need to be equipped with the scriptures to see life in this way. And our biggest problem is we forget what is that inheritance in store for us that Christ has purchased by his death on the cross. Last week in Sunday school, Rob Nettles told a joke, so some of you have heard it. But I thought, this is perfect. It's about a man and his wife who lived to the age of 90. Uh, the wife made the husband eat health foods. And at 90, they were in a car accident, and they both went to heaven together. 
And when the husband looked around at the glories of heaven, he punched his wife and said, why did you make me eat all that food? We could have been here 10 years ago. (laughs) You know, there's something in that, that if we can just remember that, we can have a joy at the darkest time in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what Jesus did. We're about to celebrate it in the Lord's Supper in this a tangible way that he gave his life for our sins, not only that we be forgiven, but that we be restored back to you, that we have an, an, an inheritance in the eternal Garden of Eden in its fullest glory in the life to come. And we find healing from this broken world in our souls. Father, let us know that hope that we would never grieve without that hope and lift us up in our darkest times. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.